We want to welcome to Vintage. This is your first time. I'm Steve Hambrick, the pastor here at Vintage, and I'm really glad that you are here. Uh, for those of you who are new, this is really kind of a, this morning we had Laura McNeil. She's sitting on the front row under a jacket because it's really cold in here. Anybody else cold in here? Any cold people? Okay, yeah. Um, so we can turn that up, please. Um, so, so Laura was up here painting this morning, and I know it's kind of awkward sometimes. Why is there someone painting on stage? That's pretty and all, but that's... That's weird. Why are they doing that, right? One of the things that, uh, you know, taking a church history class and, and just kind of being aware of what's going on in the early church, one of the things that was so cool with the early church is that they were a church and a people that actually shaped the culture in which they lived. The church was the, was the culture shaper. And one of the primary pieces that they used to shape culture was art. And so back about a year ago, Randall and I went to the Ever Good of Europe, and we actually went to France and went to the Louvre one day. And we walk, kind of walked through. I say kind of. We actually walked through, right? We walked through, and, and during our experience, it was beautiful. And, and it was amazing to see how much of the art for so long was influenced by the church. I'll never forget, I was walking through, and, and I came to this painting, and it was really a painting of the picture of the gospel. And I, and listen, I mean, I, I love art and all. Right, but I'm not like one of those like passionate lovers of art. You know what I'm saying? I'm not one of those guys. And anything wrong with those guys? I'm just not one. Okay, and so I never grew up with that. And but I'm walking through I'm like that's just pretty. That's pretty. That's pretty. And all of a sudden I came to a piece of art. and I went whoa. And all of a sudden in the Louvre, in the moment, I find myself in worship because of the message being spoken from this piece of art. I'm sitting there around all these people who are just going around, going on, and saying, Jesus and the gospel and the power of God. And so this morning, as even we talk about worship, and we've invited the Lord to come, it's because this is the expression of worship. We, she's been praying this week. She's like, I felt like God had a word of, uh, of, of, uh, of being anchored in hope. And so she had this beautiful, this was the painting she did one in the early service too, just this, this anchor, this idea of, of being anchored in the context of hope. And so this morning, even as Randall was talking about this mission, talking about mission, this call to orphans, I want you to recognize that all of us who are followers of Jesus, we have that. We, now, we are anchored in the hope of Christ's power and his love for us. But the reality is, and you understand this, in this in practicality and, and, and the realistic situation, is that there are billions of people today, literally, who are not anchored in any form of hope at all. We've named just these millions of orphans today, those who are disconnected, and they have no hope. That literally, listen, we talk about, and that, you know, Chris came to our house. Chris, just wave your hand real quick. There he is right there. Say, hey, Chris. Thank you. So, so Chris came to our house last week, and we started talking about Faith Bridge, and, and, and we talked about, he said to me, he's like, yeah, he said, literally there have been two children already that if you guys weren't going to India and we could go ahead and place them, we would have placed them twice in the last two weeks. And part of me was like, oh, my, I feel bad, but because we couldn't, but part of me was super excited. Why? Because I recognize that in that moment when they give us the phone call, all of a sudden a child steps into our home, we flood them with the hope of Jesus, and where they've been spinning around and around with no anchor, all of a sudden we speak Jesus into their life, and they get anchored in hope for the first time in their life, and I go, praise 
Jesus because all of a sudden now he they are met by the power of God's love for the very first time in their life. And I recognize in that moment that what has just happened is that God's mission to a lost and dying and hurting people now is being realized in this poor young girl. And that should make us feel overwhelmed, sobered, and excited all at the same time. Because last week we started this conversation about about mission and being a people of mission. And we read Jesus' words, and he meant this when he said it. In John 20, 12, this is a reminder from last week. Jesus said, as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. As the Father sent me in the same form that I was sent, in the same way that I was sent, with the same mission that I have been sent, I am now sending you. That there's a mission that's been given. Jesus' mission. I'm just going to read again. I'm going to put all these verses together. We looked at it last week. Jesus was sent on a mission from God, right? Not to do his own will, but the will of the one who sent him to seek and to save the lost, to come as light in darkness, to proclaim good news to the poor, proclaim freedom for the prisoners, bring sight to the blind, set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor for someone who has no anchor, adding that part of Scripture, by the way, right? But to proclaim the favor of the Lord, to come and to do the will of the one who sent him. So do you see what we're going to launch in this morning? There's a weight. And I want every single one of us to recognize Jesus intends for there to be a weight. Some of you is coming to church and you're like, oh, I just want you to come and make me feel good because I've had a bad week. Right? And let me just tell you, every single one of us in this room could sit down in the, in the view of self and talk about how bad our week has been. In fact, people seemingly revel in the fact that their weeks have been worse than somebody else's. We find these narcissistic type people that I say, well, I'm struggling. So they go, really? Well, you should see what's going on with my week, right? And they just go on and on and on to make you understand that their life is far worse than yours. And we're all guilty of it. Because by nature, and all of us know this, we are self-oriented and self-focused people who think more about self. We are the center of the world story in our own mind, right? We are the center of the world story, and we live in this place of disconnect, wanting to only experience hope for ourselves, and we rarely think about being an anchor of hope for someone else, if we're completely honest with ourselves. Because I know this because I'm telling my own story. I'm literally thinking about my own life, my own story, what I have done. I have, to some of you, made you feel bad because my week was worse than yours. I've done that. We all do it. Because we are all self-oriented by nature. We primarily think about ourselves first in every situation, even in our marriages, believe it or not. I'm sure you're more holy than I am. 
We live in this place, right, that, that God has called us to mission. He's called us, right, to be an anchor of hope because the world is dying. Billions of people today dying in need of people to be an anchor of hope and to fulfill the mission of God. And so I asked our small group this week, hey, I said, guys, talk about it. Let's talk about this mission that God's given us. Let's talk about how big it is, right? Let's talk about how, and I said, talk about how it, how it makes you feel, right? Not just your thoughts, but like, we talk about this, and how does it make you feel? And there were three primary words that came out of it. Number one, overwhelmed. Overwhelmed. Right? Like, the world's problems are so big, and to look at them, it is overwhelming, right? To go, I've been, I mean, I think Jonathan Baird said, we've been called to, like, save the world. And I'm like, that's overwhelming, right? Because the world's really big, and I'm really small. But the second word, we said, then, if that's the case, then it's sobering. It sobers me. Listen, sobriety happens to people who are drunk. And we are a culture drunk on self, aren't we? We drink the cup of self all day long and think about us and how you say mean things and you feel bad. And so I'm, I'm frustrated with you because you wronged me. And you now come and you do apologize to me. And I'm not going to be friends with you until you do because everything's about me and how I feel. And listen, in this world right now, all of us in this room have things that want to keep us from being an anchor of hope. And some of these things feel very legitimate. Life is hard. I've got this number of kids. Things are overwhelming. This is happening at work. I've got this physical problem going on. Have you ever read the Bible and seen the stories of Paul? And he tells us, he says, I've been shipwrecked. I've been bitten by vipers. I've been beaten to the point of death, not once, not twice, but three times. And still, the mission of God defines my existence at all times, meaning then that there's an excitement for us. And hear this, I'm overwhelmed and I'm sober, but I'm excited. Why? Because God does not call us to ever do something that he won't do through us. That God would never call us to something he would never empower us to do. And so in this moment, what level of frustration do you have that I'm talking about dying to self? Does it seem unfair to you that Jesus would expect in the midst of your living hell for you to still live out the mission of God as your primary call? Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, at the point of death, he said, I don't want to do this. I don't want to die. I don't want to suffer. I don't want to experience mean things people are doing and literally killing me, but not my will. That's not myself. Is not my priority. Not my will, but your will be done. So the thing this morning for us in the context of being a disciple, a follower of Jesus, in living our life on mission, the place that we must begin, obviously besides the lordship of Jesus, 
is simply this. This is a focal point for this morning. We're going to dive into Mark 14 and look at it at length. It's this. We must believe that Jesus is better than everything else. We must believe in our life that Jesus is better than anything else in our lives. Everything. Do we truly believe that he is better, right? That following Jesus, being obedient to him in the midst of every situation of life is truly better than anything. That what we give up is worth far less than what we are receiving from him. That fulfilling his call to deny ourselves, pick up our cross daily and follow him becomes easier every day as we see what we get in return in knowing Jesus. And the reason we have to ask this question and come to this reality is because every day there will be, in in every moment of life, there are unlimited numbers of things that will attack this belief that Jesus is enough. had a buddy of mine having a conversation one day several years ago, and he was was talking, and I I remember the last time we had talked, he'd been reading a a book by E.M. Bounds on prayer. I say a book, it's like a volume like this, E.M. Bounds Prayer. You all should pick it up and just use it as a resource, one of the most profound books throughout history for prayer. So, And he's just been reading this book, and God was doing great things. He's telling me stories of God doing things in prayer and speaking to him and and drawing him nearer to to himself, right? All these beautiful pieces. And I said, I said, how's it going? He's like, well, you know, he said, um, <clears throat> he said, it was great. He said, but all of a sudden, this is literally verbatim, all hell began to break loose in my life. Like, as I began to pursue Jesus, as I began to go after him, as I began to go deeper in relationship with him, literally all hell broke loose. He started this long list of difficulties, long list of hardships, long list of, of things that were not easy, things that were struggles for him, right? And he said, he said, so I just got to the point, he said, man, it's just not worth it. So I just kind of pulled back. And then with a great pastoral fashion, I said, dude, then you're wasting your life. He's like, what? I said, you all of a sudden became a threat to the kingdom of the enemy. So he began to come after you. And then you pulled back because Jesus was not enough. Was that really pastoral and loving of me? Right. And he just kind of sat there dumbfounded. I never speak to him like that. And I did. I, and I was like, I was caught in the moment. Right. Because the moment of reality was man, he was beginning to actually make a kingdom impact. But Jesus wasn't enough. Do you see that hardship began to come and comfort wasn't around? So he ran to it because that's what he needed with Jesus. He had Jesus and something. Is Jesus enough? Look at Mark chapter 14. We're going to dive into the first uh, verse 3 through 9 specifically. I'm going to read it. Go ahead and put it up on the screen. Verse 3. I'm going to read with you guys from up here. To your Bibles, please turn. I forgot mine this morning. Isn't that terrible? I'm a terrible sinner. All right. While he was in Bethany. Praise God for the computer. Here we go. While he, Jesus, was in Bethany reclining at the table in the home of a man known as Simon the leper. Just press pause real quick. He, he was a man known as Simon the leper, meaning that if people were coming into his house, it meant Jesus had healed him. That's pretty cool. It's probably a celebratory moment right here, okay? A woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor, and they rebuked her harshly. Leave her alone, said Jesus. Why are you bothering her? She has done a 
a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, and you can help them anytime you want, but you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. I tell you the truth, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. The overarching reality of the story is that we could, this is Mary of Bethany, we picked it up from the book of John, right? But that in this moment, Jesus, this is the focal point, Jesus was far more valued to Mary of Bethany than her greatest treasure. See this, and you've probably all heard this story, so hear it again, afresh and anew. Don't write me off because you already know the message, because you've heard this before. Receive it in humility, as if it's the first time you've ever heard it, and allow Jesus to speak to you something that he wants to do inside of you. And so in this moment, right, Mary has come. She has her 401k in this jar of perfume, 300 denarii, right, one year's wages, put it today, somewhere between forty-five dollars or $6,000, whatever you think is, a, is the average income, right? And it's not, listen, $45,000, $6,000, that's a lot of money. It's a lot of money to let alone make in one year, but also to save in one year. Can you imagine that? Like most people live paycheck to paycheck, right? And here she is, a a woman, right? A woman who is single, and somehow she's worked hard enough not just to live, but to also save something. She has worked hard to the best of her abilities to to make enough money to have something of of a retirement fund, something in case all hell broke loose in her life, to protect and to guard her. And she says in the moment, I think it would be best to spend this on worship and devotion to Jesus. I mean, I don't know about you, but I, that, that would be hard to go to my savings account today and just liquefy it and worship to Jesus. And that's what she's doing in the moment, right? And this, this value of comparison, right? That knowing Jesus and devotion to Jesus, he is number one. He is, he is number one. That if Jesus does not come through for her, right? That she's in trouble because she's expending all of this in worship to him. Because why? Jesus was more valuable in everything to her, nothing that she possessed or that she owned, nothing about her own status. Jesus was everything. In the moment, right, we get this beautiful peace, right, that she comes under attack, but Jesus comes, right, in this moment of clarity and conviction of Mary's devotion to Jesus, and he says, wherever the gospel is preached, verse 9, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. We're telling her story today, right? This picture of Jesus's wonder and just in splendor of telling a story of a woman who gave her greatest treasure and worship to him. That she really believed that Jesus was more important than everything, that Jesus really is better than anything else, right? Jesus loves and admires this devotion. But verse 4 and 5 tells us this moment, this moment of conflict arises. Verse 4 and 5, right? The language of verse 5 says that they rebuked her harshly, the disciples, the followers of Jesus, right? They come and they see this work, this act that she does, and they think it is wasteful. Because you could take all of this, think of what you could do with the poor. 
Think honestly what you can do with the orphans. Honestly, right? I mean, hey, let's watch and see what we can do with this. How dare you do this, right? And in this moment, she's attacked. She's, she's literally having her brothers, these spiritual brothers, these spiritual mentors of hers, come against her, speak against her. They, they, they let her have it. They let her know she's an idiot, right? This is violent displeasure. Rebuke harshly means to, this, to be angry. They were angry with an expressed violent displeasure. Someone, they're screaming at her. It is overwhelming in the moment. You see, when we talk about Jesus being better than everything, what we usually mean is, I want Jesus for all the things he can do for me, and then when all hell breaks loose in my life, then it's a crapshoot. Right? Because in this moment, she comes under attack for her devotion. These ones who she thought loved her are coming against her with righteous indignation. But in this moment, right, she's suffering opposition. And in our lives of our devotion to Jesus and our devotion to the mission and our devotion to to following and doing and being sent by Jesus, we come against opposition. It come from people, friends, family, church, work, strangers. It could be internal struggle, right? Our own mind, our insecurities, our fears, our doubts, our worries, whatever it may be, can come against our devotion. It could be our situations or experiences that attack our devotion, an untimely death of a loved one. A sickness that we go through or somebody else goes through. It could be a sorrow that we experience in life. And in these moments of our devotion being threatened, we have this moment of what are we going to do? Is Jesus better than these things? Is Jesus better than the stupid decisions that my child is making that's wrecking me to the core? Is Jesus better than the sorrow that I'm going through through from broken and painfully broken relationships? Is he better than all of this? Is he better than the, the verbal assault I face from the ones I thought loved me most? Is he better than the betrayal that I face when I'm trying to do what's best? I'm trying to be obedient. Jesus speaks to this in Matthew 13, this, this tension that we face in verse 20. He says, for the, the, the parable of the seed, the parable of the soul, is that how you look at it? It says, the seed falling on rocky ground refers to someone who hears the word and at once receives it with joy. But since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, because of Jesus, obedience to Jesus, they quickly fall away. The falling away means that what they are facing causes them to listen. What they are facing in the moment causes them to believe that relationship with Jesus is not better than everything. Because if it was better than everything, then they would have just endured the suffering because Jesus was enough in the moment. Do we practically Live as if Jesus is better than anything and everything. See, the falling away does not necessarily mean they literally turn their entire being away from God as if they're now an atheist completely opposed to God. Most of the falling away literally means that they have Jesus and something else. You read that in the first, second Kings, go read it sometimes. Sometimes you see the story of the Israelites who were devoted to God. 
as it pleased them and met their needs. But they had some other gods over here just in case God, the Yahweh, didn't work out for him. It was Jesus and a falling away, right? A, a split devotion. So in our lives, we have our own struggle with our own devotion that gets in the way of our mission that God has us on. Whether it could be, listen, it could be anything. It could be Jesus and personal comfort that I've got to have. Jesus and control of my time. Jesus and lust. Jesus and selfish desires. What is it? That literally we look, we look to worship other than Jesus. Because anything I look at to meet a need or to fulfill me in a difficult time is the thing that I worship other than Jesus. It keeps me from my devotion. It keeps me from mission. What is it that I look to to meet a need that Jesus isn't filling in the moment? And each of us have our own insecurities in those pieces that we wrestle with. Is Jesus better than everything? What is it we hold on to? What is it we run to instead of Jesus? Because we're afraid of what it will mean letting it go. Because Jesus isn't enough. See, I love this for Mary. It's real practical. For Mary, it meant Jesus was better than her nest egg. That Jesus was better than the finances that she could lean back on. So she's in in her devotion. She says, I'm going to I'm going to worship God with this gift. I'm going to worship God with this thing. I'm going to worship him with it. And listen and trust that for the rest of my life, Jesus will provide as Lord of my life and meet all of my need according to his riches in heaven. Do you see the leaning into Jesus, the trusting of Jesus, the bowing down to his lordship, to his control in her life, saying it's not what I make. It's about trusting the Lord. Like, I know you're sitting there. Kelly's giving me the evil eye over here. He's going to stink. I was like, oh, Steve, what are you saying? I'm just kidding. No, but I know when I talk over here, right, I'm picking on Kelly because I can. But but it's like I know that when we're talking, it's like, oh, this hurts. This doesn't feel good. This doesn't make me happy. This doesn't, this is like calling me out. Why? Because it's overwhelming. It should cause sobriety in us. And it should cause us to be excited. Because if he really is God, and he really is better than everything, then he's worth it. And he's better than all the sorrow we face, and all the struggles, and all the loss, and everything else. Because he's worth it. And Mary's saying, and Jesus said, listen, listen, in the moment I want you to recognize, guys. Listen to his response. Go back down to verse 7 through 9. I'm just going to read part of it. After, listen. So, they have abused her. Like a good parent. Listen, sometimes I'll watch Anna Catherine and Sarah. They're not here so I can say it, right? Sometimes one of them happens to go off on the other. And they reaches that. And I want to be a good parent. Can I let them just kind of go through their stuff? And then because the point becomes too mean. And I'm like, cut them off. You ever done that? Jesus doesn't cut it off. Jesus lets her suffer. Jesus lets her go through the moment. I know, so you're like, this is messing with my theology. I don't like it, right? But Jesus is allowing this verbal assault to happen in the moment. And she, like you, would be left reeling because the guys she's looked up to are making her feel bad about her expression of devotion to Jesus. And she has, I guarantee because she's a human being, that moment of like, oh, oh, she's looking around, oh, and Jesus is there 
And then all of a sudden, in the suffering, in the opposition, because it happens, because Jesus promises, anybody who follows me will suffer. When they, he says, when you suffer for my name, when you struggle against opposition, when the world comes against you, when people come against you, when your own mind comes against you, when the literal enemy, the, the, the demons from hell come after you, when you suffer for my name because of your obedience, to me, we can know from Matthew 28, we looked at it two weeks ago, surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. What does Jesus do? He says, leave her alone in my name. Don't you love that? He doesn't say in Jesus' name, Jesus is my name, right? Leave her alone. What she has done will make you look like fools for eternity. And she got it right. We're going to glorify the woman in the moment and suppress the man. We're going to oppress the man. Right? You see, I'm getting a little... In the moment, he glorifies. He raises her, her action up for all of us to understand. This is what he looks for in the life of devotion and worship from his followers that nothing else gets in the way. That Jesus is better than everything in our life. So when we then live out the sentness of our mission, all of a sudden, we become an anchor of hope for the dying, the Lord the marginalized, and the forgotten. And when we do that, Jesus says, I never call you to do something that I will not empower you to do. I want you to experience the feeling of being overwhelmed. I want you to be sobered, and I want you to get excited. But you better make sure that I am better than anything and everything else, because there will come that moment when all hell is going to break loose against you, and you're going to have a crisis of faith of what do I do? Is Jesus better than your suffering? Is Jesus better than the sorrow and the betrayal that you face? Is Jesus enough to not just fill that, but so abundantly fill it that it's now behind you and you can move forward and you can bless those who curse you and love those who've cursed you. And like Paul saying, it doesn't matter what's happened as long as they're preaching the gospel, right? Hey, bless them for doing it, even though they're talking bad against me while I'm in prison. Jesus is enough. He's better than everything. Jesus is more than enough. And the story of Mary of Bethany is the picture of the heart reality that we can experience. I invite you, I implore you, I've read this this morning. If you don't have to study this week in your time with Jesus... Just read the story of Mary of Bethany and her active devotion and let Jesus speak to you. I can only give you a fraction of what it's worth. If it's a message for all ages, then it's worth more than 30 minutes. Spend time in it. Give yourself to it. Let Jesus speak to you about trust and of confidence. Let him speak to you about discipleship and mission. Let him speak to you about his value and his worth. 
in your life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you, Jesus, that you are more than enough. You meet all of our needs according to your riches, God, that you speak into our life. And God, we confess as human beings, I confess as a human being, God, I I wrestle, God, I struggle. It is difficult. It is hard. Just confess that, God. I'm like everyone else here, God, I wrestle through this. That, Father, there are moments I just want to run away from you. There are moments, Father God, I'm like, it's just so hard to be a Christian. It's just so hard to, to feel disconnected. It feels so hard to be left out. It feels so hard to live opposed to culture in so many ways. God, it's just so hard. But Jesus, this morning, I pray that you would speak into us with grace and by your mercy and reveal how great and how powerful and how wonderful and how beautiful you are, that you were worth it. God, we come in our brokenness this morning and say, God, we are selfish. God, I can, you know, you know, you know how selfish I really am. You know how I wrestle every day against my flesh. You know how every day I struggle to be obedient, to keep in step. You know how every day God, I cry out to you because I'm desperate for your presence. You know how every day, God, I, I get to a point and say, oh, God, I think I failed you here, but thank you for your love for me in that. God, I, you know. And I pray for each person in this room, God, that in their place of frailty, in their place of brokenness, in their place of pain, in their place of suffering, God, I pray by your grace that you would scream through the, through the, just through the, every bit of their being, I am better than everything. Because, God, we want to fulfill your mission. God, we want the orphans to have a home as we know you do, because you say you put the homeless in homes, the fatherless, you put them in families, God. And so, Jesus, today, I pray, first, reveal your love to us Two, convict us of our selfishness and our pride in light of your love for us so we don't feel condemned. And then, God, I pray you would awaken us. You would sober us, God, to the excitement then of knowing you and of being enough and empowering us in mission, even when all hell is breaking loose against us. God, would you make us a people that when the going gets tough, we don't run away, but we dive further and further into Jesus in the moment and expect your presence in the midst of hell because you prepare a table before us in the presence of our enemies. Jesus, come and do what only you can do. I want to invite you this morning to go ahead and stand and worship.